G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you, and I'm looking forward to this topic. Absolutely. It is good to be with you as always. I know I say that every week, but I must admit, I really do mean that this week because it is an absolutely fascinating topic and you and I have both had a bit of a chat about this off air and I've been down all sorts of rabbit holes in the last two weeks doing some research. So really looking forward to chatting with you about this today. But we've called today's episode Demystifying DID, which stands for Dissociative Identity Disorder. So Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of an overview? What are we going to be chatting about today? Okay, well, dissociative identity disorder, or DID, is a classic dissociative disorder because it includes all the key kinds of dissociative symptoms. So that includes amnesia or periods of missing time. It includes depersonalisation and derealisation, the themes of our most recent podcast, trance states, hallucinations, and then a shift in people's identity, some kind of disruption in people's identity So they feel as though they have at least two distinct personality states or parts, which used to be called alters, but now we tend to refer to them as parts or personality states. And as you mentioned there, today's episode will follow on a little bit from the last couple of episodes that we've done, which looked at depersonalisation and derealisation and some of the symptoms of dissociation. But I'm really interested to get into today's topic, which is about a dissociative identity disorder, which is a very specific form of dissociation. But as you alluded to there and and talking about alters, I believe when we referred to alters, it was known as multiple personality disorder, which is something that might be a little bit more recognisable to maybe people have seen movies and, and people with an awareness of Hollywood and that sort of thing. But I wonder why then, why was it that we changed from the terminology of multiple personality disorder to dissociative identity disorder? And I wonder what that change reflects as well. Okay, now the key thing is the term multiple personality disorder seems to maybe put too much emphasis on the idea of these different personality states. It almost, if you like reinforces or emphasises the idea of multiplicity, so to speak. And many of us as therapists in this area think that if people are over-invested in the idea of multiplicity, over-invested in the feeling of like they really are different kind of personality or parts, as though they're different people, really are different people almost, that's, we think, a kind of exaggeration of more how it works. And so... Multiple personality sounds like more than one person. But as David Spiegel, a specialist in this area, described, well, in some ways with DID, people are functioning almost as like less than one personality, meaning a somewhat compromised, fragmented personality to a degree. And so the notion of dissociative identity disorder gets across that notion of some level of a sense of fragmentation or splitting within oneself, within one person, rather than, if you like, overemphasizing the idea it's as though it's more than one person. It's still one human being. Well, it's a fascinating change, I think, that was made and, and 
you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, but uh, I believe it was between the DSM-3 and the DSM-4 where the, the change was made from multiple personality to dissociative identity. And we're only up to DSM-5 now, so it was a relatively recent change that was made. But I was doing a bit of research about this during the week, Dad, and I came across a brilliant analogy of, of someone who experienced dissociative identity disorder, and they talked about it like dropping a bowl and the bowl shattering and basically going to pick up the pieces of the bowl and maybe it was amongst other shattered bowls and not necessarily knowing which piece was part of the original bowl. And it got me thinking, and it, it, I think it is an interesting one. And to me, the change reflects the idea of, of the personality being a little bit more like a bowl in terms of when it becomes split. We look towards the original thing in the first place that, that is then split, as opposed to, for example, a log. When you split a log, you might have two logs. You know, you, you chop up all your wood and you're sitting there by the fire. You go, let's put another log on the fire. You don't say, let's put a half log or a quarter log on the fire. And to me, the multiple personality idea seems to reflect a little bit the idea of a log. That if you split something, it, it just becomes kind of smaller and smaller versions of itself. Whereas the idea of dissociative identity disorder seems to reflect a little bit more the analogy of a bowl. In terms of even though something becomes split, we still... I suppose, contextualise it in terms of the original whole that it started as. I think that makes sense. But just to acknowledge, a number of people felt the change was somewhat controversial, especially a number of people who are experiencing these different personality states who maybe found it a little bit more difficult to accept the idea of just, in a sense, accepting oneself as one person, albeit some confusion and a feeling of maybe fragmentation or splitting within oneself. And those people who really felt as though they were more than one person, so to speak, some of them objected to the notion of DID. And I thought it came up in quite an amusing way when, again, David Spiegel was doing a workshop at one stage and he saw some people in the front row and they had this T-shirt with DID, these big DID letters on the front. And he thought oh, well, they're going along with the change in terminology and, um, okay, well, they're accepting the different uh, notion and, anyway, they got up to leave and he saw the back of their T-shirt was did not. <laughs> they were objecting to the shift in terminology. Well, I think that you've alluded to it a little bit there, but I think it might even be interesting to have a look at a bit of the history around dissociative identity disorder because it alludes to, I suppose, why we, we think of it as we do now do you want to just give us a bit of a sense of what that history is now? Look, I think this is really interesting and it helps us get more of an understanding of dissociation and how long it has been recognised. Because when it became very controversial, especially around the 1980s, of people being diagnosed then with multiple personality, the vast majority of clinicians around the world, certainly in North America, Australia, Britain, the vast majority of clinicians were saying, look, this doesn't exist even dissociative experience or dissociation doesn't really exist. It's really like people making it up and it's naive therapists suggesting to someone that they might have different parts to themselves like that and that came up with the false memory debate. Often it was the notion of naive therapists asking people questions in a certain way. They might have seen the movie Sybil or Three Faces of Eve and the clinicians were getting sucked into this idea. They're being different personalities and unwittingly maybe, but suggesting that to the, the clients. But many of us thought that wasn't the case. And certainly in Geelong in 1990, in the early 90s, a number of us really became convinced that some of our clients experienced themselves as having 
quite distinct parts to themselves. And the interesting thing to me is that many of them hadn't just recently developed that idea. You could trace it back, and since they were children, they'd have different names for different parts of themselves, like 20 years earlier, before this debate came up. And so then looked into the history and realised the first case of dual personality was actually in 1791. And there was this case where a woman, a German woman, started speaking fluent French. And normally she couldn't speak fluent French at all. And yet she had this really aristocratic French accent. And when she tried to speak in German when she was in that mode, her German sounded like a French woman trying to speak German, like not fluent German. And yet at other times she'd be speaking fluent German and have a very basic kind of French. So that was something that really captured people's imagination. Then. And there were a number of examples that came up around that time. And then James Braid developed the notion of hypnotism, hypnosis, in the 1840s. And people recognised that there was an overlap with these trance states, if you like, and dual personality or then multiple personality. But then it was actually really big around the turn of the century, the late 1800s, early 1900s, many clinicians were interested in dissociation. You get really reputable clinicians, like there was William James, for example, who was interested, Pierre Jarnet, and then there was Morton Prince. He was actually the first editor of the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. That's a mainstream journal. In 1906, it had a case in it of then called multiple personality. And Morton Prince got into the mental health field, because of his interest in that phenomenon. So in other words, it was all over the place, if you like, in the early 20th century, but then it went out of favour, and that was largely because of psychoanalysis, so Freudian notions that went in a different direction, looked at unconscious processes and id and ego, and, and went away from, if you like, hypnosis and the trance state's emphasis. And also there was the rise of behaviourism, so people would look at reinforcement schedules and habits and animal behaviour. And so that went right away from a notion like dissociation and these internal trance states that people would have because behaviourism was very much looking at what was on the outside, looking at people's behaviour and measuring that, much less interested in people's internal states of mind. And so what happened is then dissociation basically disappeared from the conversation, mainly came back more after the Vietnam War and also after rape crisis centres were developed around the 1970s, the rise of feminism and the establishment of what would now be called you know, sexual assault centres or something along those lines. But it was recognised, increasingly recognised, the impact of war and the impact of sexual abuse led to trauma reactions of which dissociative experiences was a common aspect Elements of amnesia, elements of depersonalisation, even trance states would come into that. So it was very controversial through the 70s and 80s, but then around the early to mid-90s, you'd start to see articles on dissociation in, for example, the American Journal of Psychiatry. And it started to gradually become a little bit more accepted, but much more so in the 2000s. And so these days, if people diagnose PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder, then you're meant to specify whether it's also, say, with dissociative features or not. So most clinicians who work in the trauma area know that commonly 
post-traumatic stress reactions, especially if they were repeated in childhood, commonly involve dissociation. Well, it's a fascinating history and so interesting that it was when people started to look into trauma and the reactions of trauma that it started to come out a little bit. But I think it also maybe even alludes to a little bit that the fashion that can come through in academia and in psychology sometimes for it to, to almost come in and go out of fashion so much is, is so interesting when it is such a, an interesting phenomenon. Well, I'm really interested that you pick up on that point because that's the thing that fascinated me. Well, I suppose that there were two different things that fascinated me. One is it's the most striking kind of phenomenon, if you like. Like as a clinician, when you encounter it, and no doubt for the person themselves, it's such a different kind of human experience. For example, for people to really feel as though there's someone else or outside their body or the extent of amnesia that the person can forget their entire history for a period of time, things like that, they're on the edge of human experience. And I think that's why they have come up in Hollywood movies. Actually, they were talked about a lot more in Hollywood movies in the 80s and 90s than they were in mental health circles and psychiatric hospitals where they should have been talked about more. But the other aspect of it is what you're describing about fashion. Yes, much of science is about fashion. And I find that fascinating. I used to think science was so objective, these ways of looking at things. But in fact, when people looked at trauma... Trauma also mainly became fashionable after world wars. So after World War I, for 10 years, people are right into shell shock. After World War II, people are right into war neurosis. And then they get buried. You know, after 10 years or so, they get buried kind of thing. And then along came the Vietnam War, and then people started talking about PTSD. And then because it was more scientific in those days, and more people were articulate and could speak up about their range of experience then even though it was a very unpopular diagnosis with many mainstream clinicians, dissociative disorders, there were too many people interested who wouldn't let it drop. And then the more and more research was done, they could show, for example, about 4% of psychiatric inpatients had severe dissociative disorders and about 15% of psychiatric outpatients would have a significant dissociative disorder, including depersonalisation, things like that. And so over a period of time, that shifted because of the research. In the end, it was hard to ignore the science. But if you go through the 1980s, there'd be many mental health professionals who prided themselves on being scientific and just would bluntly deny any prospect that there's any meaning to a term like dissociative identity disorder without someone either faking it or making a mistake or exaggerating or something like that. Well, if anything, that strikes me as a real shame, if anything else, because it, it seems that, you know, what, through what we've spoken about a little bit before and, and what we will speak about in today's podcast, that, that would have been really invalidating for the people who did experience that. And I wonder if part of that unpopularity that you allude to there is part of the reason for the fact that I believe 90% of, of cases of, of DID are what's considered covert. So basically, it, it's not that Hollywood idea of, you know, very, very marked changes and, and very obvious that someone's experiencing a change in personality. It's almost more something that in the vast majority of cases, as I said, 90% of people try and hide the experience that they're going through. 
So I wonder then, how do you recognise that someone is going through dissociative identity disorder when they are trying to hide it, when there is this sentiment that maybe they are feeling invalidated by the medical community, potentially they're even therapists at some times. How do you recognise that someone is experiencing dissociative identity disorder if they may be trying to keep it covert? Okay, that's a really good point because ultimately it's going to involve some level of trust for a person to divulge that when they have a sense that what's happening themselves is so weird, it can seem so bizarre. Even the depersonalisation experiences we talked about last time, people being outside their body looking on as if they're another person, people having amnesia for even hours at a time, people finding themselves acting so differently at one time with another, it's really as though they're a different person. Like I can remember one person who was diagnosed with a dissociative disorder at the hospital who otherwise was thought to be schizophrenic when it was put to her that it might be multiple personality disorder, she said, that would mean I would be really crazy. She was much more ready to accept the diagnosis of schizophrenia. And this shows some of the invalidation that can go with that and the concern about people just being judged or marginalised as too weird, bizarrely crazy, that kind of thing. And I do want to pick up on something before we talk about the signs of dissociation. I do want to pick up on what you're saying about invalidation. Yes, most people who develop DID have had some kind of repeated major distress in childhood in terms of sexual or physical abuse, emotional abuse or neglect. Repeated very challenging circumstances where the person feels overwhelmed and in a way the best way they can manage that at the time is to switch off. Switch off their feelings maybe even switch off their subjective sense of being in their body. What we talked about last time, the depersonalisation and the buffer it can give people from pain if they're not inside their body. These are hypnotic mechanisms. And the peak age of hypnotic ability is between the ages of 8 and 12. And if people are experiencing this kind of abuse or trauma or overwhelming feelings when they're around those ages, and if they've got this hypnotic capacity to not, not be there, to go into a trance state, then it's very compelling to not be there. But the thing is, often they've experienced invalidating environments. If they've been sexually abused, if they've been physically abused or neglected or emotionally abused, they are invalidating environments. And what was happening, people were being admitted to hospital there were some clinicians suspecting that this might be a severe dissociative disorder rather than schizophrenia or some other condition or rather than them just having like a rotten personality and being overly hysterical kind of thing if we thought that might be a level of abuse that they've experienced even if they wouldn't readily divulge it because they are fearful of acknowledging sometimes to themselves that past experience and certainly talking about it to others which would bring up all the feelings so that people might keep it to themselves but if they did acknowledge something of their experience of abuse or their sense of multiplicity, and if they were then invalidated or disbelieved, they're invalidated all over again. They've got a history of invalidation in childhood often. Then there they are, later on it impacts on them, also with overlapping what we call borderline personality patterns. There's about two-thirds overlap between severe dissociative disorders and borderline personality patterns where people have difficulty managing their emotions, what we call emotional regulation or impulse control or feeling very wary of other people. And dissociative symptoms are actually one of the 
symptoms also of borderline personality disorder. So you get this kind of overlap. But you get the problem of invalidation upon invalidation. And that's where a number of us as clinicians felt it was really important to learn more about dissociation. Unfortunately, from around the early 90s, certainly there were a range of ways of assessing it fairly well, questionnaires and interviews. And even I used to use the Rorschach inkblot test because you knew that people wouldn't know how to fake that because there was so little written about it. But again, characteristically, people would have these signs that would show up in the Rorschach inkblot test and you could think, look, they're not faking that. Not many people read this obscure literature, but it backs up all the other kind of ways that they're acknowledging this multiplicity, if you like. But what happened in the end, in the early 90s, is it was the therapists who were interested in these conditions and talked about dissociation. The therapists ended up being marginalised. Because especially, look, dare I say, especially by British psychiatrists at the time, but also like quite a number of staff, they're just disbelieving about this notion of the person's sense of multiplicity. And that was once reflected in where we're going to have an in-service education session on multiple personality or at least severe dissociative symptoms and severe dissociative conditions one time. And a number of us arranged to have a discussion on this where we'd talk about some of the limited scientific evidence, the clinical evidence at the time, using objective measures and things like that and objective interviews. And one psychiatrist circulated a journal article. It was about a four-page article by a Canadian psychiatrist saying, like, dissociative disorders don't exist. And then the psychiatrist explained, well, therefore, we're not going to discuss this. We'll never discuss it again. Here's the journal article. It was based on no evidence. It was just four pages of sheer dogma and prejudice saying it didn't exist. Nothing about the history, nothing about the phenomenology that people would describe with their conditions. It was just saying, no, this didn't exist. And the clinicians working in that area were invalidated as well. And that was a key feature, I'd say, in several of us leaving the hospital around that time. It actually wasn't safe to explore the notion of dissociation objectively and discuss it with colleagues. It would be seen as being gullible, it would be seen as being unscientific or irresponsible. Well, things changed a lot in the decades after that. It was because a lot of the research that was done, including with war veterans and people with abuse and other forms of trauma. Well, it's, yeah, fascinating, fascinating history. And as I say, such a shame that people would would be so dogmatic about it. But it's interesting talking about the emphasis on behaviourism that you spoke about earlier. I know you were talking about it in terms of being a little bit earlier than the period of time that you were speaking about then. But you can see how with that emphasis on behaviour, something like dissociative identity disorder, which is so inherently kind of internal in terms of someone's experience, you can see how that would almost... I suppose, challenge someone's worldview to such a degree that they would almost be a little bit invested in, in the other side in some ways. So, yeah, as I say, a real shame that people would act like that, but uh, I wonder if it is from that emphasis in behaviour. Yes, a lot of that, but I think it's really interesting what you say about worldview. Everybody who came to believe in severe dissociative disorders had a shift in worldview. Because I don't know anyone around 1980 or thereabouts who would have believed there being truth, if you like, in such a condition. It just seemed like a fantasy or if it did exist, it would be one in a million. And I remember that when I was first asked to assess someone, it was only later on I recognised that this person did fit all the characteristics of a severe dissociative disorder and multiple personality as it was described at the time. But I didn't recognise it 
because the person's reactions at the time seemed to me so subtle relative to, for example, Sybil, that movie. But what happened at one stage, let's just say this client's name was Sally and I was assessing her using the Rorschach inkblot test. At one stage, when I showed her one of the cards, her eyes narrowed to a slit looking at this inkblot. She dropped it on the floor, moved back, stood up, looked at me in a somewhat menacing kind of way and said, don't call me Sally. Now, that might have been a clue of some identity shift when I was specifically asked to do an assessment to see if this person, whether she might have dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality, which involves identity shifts. But because she still kind of looked like the same person and because I was looking to still continue with the assessment in a certain way, I look back now and think that was one of the most obvious shifts I ever would have seen. Her whole demeanour changed. But I only realised afterwards, I thought, how could I have missed that when I twigged later on? It really fitted in so many ways when I looked up the research and looked up at Rorschach, how it matched other people's. And I realised that I'd actually decided before I assessed her that she would not have multiple personality. And I realised that my thinking was there was someone else I'd heard of at the hospital that I really believed did have a multiple personality. I was convinced from a psychiatrist's observations that that person did have that condition. And I'd unconsciously told myself I would never encounter that condition for the rest of my life. I didn't realise I thought that, but I realised I was actually blocking out the very prospect because I just went back to the ward and talked with a couple of people and asked, why was this person referred to me to see whether it might be schizophrenia or something else? She's so obviously so severely disturbed, it's very obviously paranoid schizophrenia. Why waste the time of referring someone like that to me when it's so blatantly obvious? And I was denying in my own mind how I used to often walk past Sally in the corridor and see her interacting with other people in a very balanced, dare I say, relatively normal fashion. I'd screened all of that out because it didn't fit my conception of things. And so I realised that with myself, I had to go through this massive shift in worldview to admit the possibility that maybe there might be more examples of multiple personality than I saw at the time. And then the penny started to drop. And then there were three, four, five, six, seven. Over a period of a year or two, I looked back and I thought there were about eight people. I'd had contact with and I started looking back over their Rorschach inkblots, other evidence at the time, meeting up with them afterwards. They'd still be linked with the hospital. One or two are still my clients. And then the picture seemed to emerge all the more. And um, look, look, at this point, I might mention some of the signs. You asked what the signs were earlier. And um, this is how it does tend to show up in real life. But it's not the dramatic three-dimensional Hollywood, like a different character bursts out of someone's chest or they've got three heads or it's not as blatantly obvious as you might think it's more subtle how it shows and the first thing is changeability some level of inconsistency in the person's presentation and also complexity so there'd be confusion amongst the therapists too and the clinicians about the nature of someone's difficulties and when we think of the nature of dissociation that makes sense that most people who are diagnosed with a severe dissociative disorder were also diagnosed with about five or six additional conditions, including things like 
major depressive disorder, borderline personality disorder. It might be a certain anxiety state with panic attacks. Usually there are several different things, often substance abuse, often an eating disorder. There are a range of other things often people had, but particularly depression and borderline personality disorder would often be there. And maybe people were suspected of having a bipolar disorder. That would often come up as a question in the diagnosis because of the person's changeability. But there'd be all this kind of dispute and disagreement about how the person was and how they presented and what their diagnosis should be, partly because different clinicians would see the person at different times or in different settings and you get the changeability. So of course that's the norm for dissociation. So things like recurrent depression in people's histories, often there'll be some kind of trauma hints in the background. It could even include someone being very wary of talking about their past in some ways. Also, people being somewhat standoffish and wary in relationships. You'd feel that sense of it taking a lot longer to build up a certain level of trust. Like I said, the borderline aspects, some difficulties with managing with emotions and impulse control. People often had a history of relatively unstable relationships and sometimes people would be too trusting and not have boundaries there to manage their relationships with others or otherwise people might have too strong boundaries and nearly be keeping everyone out. When that happened, often found that people with dissociative disorders often were very close to pets or animals and you'd think, well, fair enough, animals are that much more trustworthy whereas the people they dealt with in the past might not have been so much. Uh, So a lot of problems with boundaries. You'd also see at times that clinicians would tend to cross their boundaries more And this is a more extreme example, but I would say that usually if a clinician, a mental health professional, invites someone to move in with them in their home, I know that sounds weird, I know of a number of situations like that, that you you wonder about the boundary problem, but often I think that's a big clue that someone might have a dissociative condition and the therapist has got caught up in those problems with boundaries. That wouldn't happen so much these days, but in the early days you'd hear more stories about that. Impulsive anger is another one. So things like fight, flight, freeze, submit, those kind of reactions. So panicky feelings might come up. Then impulsive anger might come up another time. A lot of somatic symptoms, headaches. Often people, when they shifted from one part to another, would get headaches. Eating disorders, quite common, substance abuse, um, and panic reactions. Now, these are the kind of things that tend to show up as a mixed, complicated diagnostic picture. And I found for a number of years, not just in my later years at Geelong, but also when I worked at Heidelberg with the war veterans in the Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital there, about half of the referrals for psychological assessment, which were usually only the more complex referrals, about half of them seemed to fit the pattern of dissociative disorders. And when you looked into it, that seemed to show up. Now, that might seem like blatantly looking out for something that wasn't there, when it was meant to be so rare, like one in a million. But when you think about it, if all this changeability and complexity is part of the pattern, people don't get referred to a psychologist for a diagnostic assessment for, say, severe depression or more straightforward forms of schizophrenia. It's too obvious. So in other words, the really, really complex referrals that would go to a psychologist in in those days 
I would find 50% of the time, also with the people I supervise, not just my own clients I was seeing, but when I was supervising others and they'd bring a case to supervision, about 50% of the time there'd be prominent dissociation. And that's why in our practice, you know, 25 years in our practice, we've always screened for dissociation when there's any kind of trauma history or hint of a trauma history. And it shows up a lot more frequently than people might think. Well, that's so interesting hearing you describe that because apart from really the changeability, not much of it really relates to multiple personalities. It's so much more to do with how, I suppose, one person over a period of time experiences symptoms. But in, I suppose, painting a little bit more of a picture and, and I suppose trying to discern dissociative identity disorder from the, I suppose, Hollywood version, for lack of a better term there, It'd be good now to have a little bit of a chat about, for example, some of the experiences of people with dissociative identity disorder. Because it can be the case where, for example, people's parts are multiple ages, there might be different genders, there might even be, say, not human in certain situations. So I wonder if you could give us a little bit of an insight into what it's like for someone to experience dissociative identity disorder. Okay, now one thing I'll lead on with there is one of the ways of looking to elicit it. So asking people about an experience that gives them a clue that you're maybe open to hearing more about their subjective experience. So there are two key questions I tend to ask people at first when they've had that more mixed diagnostic picture I've mentioned. Maybe it seems possibly a trauma history and you suspect association. The first thing I tend to ask people is, do you have periods of missing time? And often people don't expect to be asked that question, but it's getting at the amnesia, which is one of the defining features of dissociative identity disorder. But many more people experience that than you might think. And so asking that question invites a degree of trust. So one person who is a very high-functioning executive assistant, very bright, clearly very capable, presented very well, she said, I know I've been shopping because I opened my car boot and there's shopping in there. Another question I'd ask people is, do you ever have the experience of like being outside your body or standing outside your body and looking on as though you're another person? And as one person said to me, see those trees out the window? I'm in those trees now looking in on us. It can be quite literal. Also, the descriptions last week from Jason and Ryan get at some of that kind of experience of being outside of one's body or numbed in different ways but there's also a sense of multiplicity. And for another example of that, one time I was seeing someone who was functioning very well as a lawyer, a young woman who was again clearly very bright and accomplished, but while we were talking in her first session, she'd taken a tissue and she was ripping it into little bits in her fingers with her hands close together the whole time, just ripping little bits of the tissue. After a while, I asked her, after asking some of the other questions related to dissociation, say later in the interview, I asked her if she ever experienced herself at times almost as though she was a different person. She let all the little bits of tissue drop on the floor, these little separate bits of tissue saying, that's me. It was such a graphic kind of description of this sense of there being discrete different parts of her in a sense. So that notion of periods of missing time Also confusion at times about how someone might have reacted. People can wonder, oh, I I can't remember much of the last couple of hours. What might I have done? And a, a real concern about that. 
or it might come up in a more subtle way, like one client halfway through a session looked down at her clothes and said, ah, realising that she was in a different mode when she dressed her top half to the bottom half, if you like, like the skirt and the top, you could say it was quite, I would have thought, quite eclectic fashion. Someone else could say it didn't match. She just recognised that she was in a different state of mind when she dressed herself at that point and only kind of, ah, noticed that a little bit later on. So there is this sense of disjoint experience, periods of missing time, standing outside oneself in certain ways. And there can be a lot that's very confusing about that to people, a lot disturbing, and especially that notion of what does it mean? People can be far more freaked out at first about what it means, think, oh, more crazy than crazy, or this is just so weird, or I must be the only person in the world like this, I can't tell anyone else about this. Also combined with a sense of wariness often, because often they've had reason to be distrusting of others, but that's where it makes so much difference for people to hear that there are many others who have these kinds of subjective experiences and reactions. Well, it is so interesting to hear you describe that there. And, and I'll put a video that I came across on the podcast page for today, which you can access at psychspiels.com.au because it's a fascinating, I suppose, account of someone who experiences dissociative identity disorder. And of all of the examples that you were talking about there, I suppose what stood out to me was A, just how distressing it would be to lose that calibration of self in terms of you may feel, you know, I'm, I'm acting in all these situations, but which one is the real me? I think that's something that everyone, you know, experiences on some level in a, a very mild way. But at the same time, if that was so pronounced, to actually feel like different people. And, and one of the things that comes across with this video is, it is, I believe it was filmed in 1993, so it was before the shift from multiple personality disorder to dissociative identity disorder. So it really talks about this multiple personality idea. But the lady in this video just had a such an eloquent way of putting her experience with the multiplicity and with the, the parts that she experiences as multiple personalities. And she said of her different parts, every traumatic event, they would protect me. They would get abused so I wouldn't have to. And to me, that really alludes to the, I suppose, the, the trance state in many ways that we're talking about in terms of the feeling of of detachment that people would induce from their experiences that they were going through, which were so negative in that stage. And and one of the things that struck me from this video is one of the experiences, oh, I guess you'd say, that, that this girl had with her multiple personalities as she experienced it back then, was that each of her parts gave each other Christmas presents. And her dissociation was so pronounced to the point where I think she even said something like, you'd come across something in a strange place and you knew that that wasn't for you, so you'd leave it for, for someone else, obviously referring to, to one of her parts there. So I'll put that up on the podcast page just because it is such a, a striking example to me of, I suppose, the change in itself that someone would experience, not so much seeing it, but hearing someone articulate what it is like to experience but I wonder, Dad, if we can now maybe even get into a little bit more of the nature of that change because obviously we have the, the Hollywood kind of version of it in terms of these really marked shifts. I came across a little bit of stuff on social media, whether it be YouTube and, and TikTok and I believe there's a number of people who have DID accounts and talk about the experience of DID and even a little bit of controversy amongst those people in terms of 
whether people are faking it, all this sort of stuff, I'm not going to get into it. But at the same time, what it does suggest to me is that there is a little bit of confusion maybe about potentially the nature of change that someone experiences when they do have a dissociative identity disorder. So I wonder if you could let us know a little bit about the nature of that change because we know it's not sort of the Hollywood kind of transform sort of thing, but what actually is it in terms of a, a more realistic idea of that switch? Okay, so part of it can be awareness of different parts that might be in the background or come to the foreground. And sometimes people might be in a certain state of mind, like they might be feeling like they're one part or we might say like a host personality, so to speak, and not even aware of some other parts. So different parts are aware of other different parts, if you like. It's not as though the person's usually aware of the whole system often or there could be more there. And usually if people are acknowledging two or three different parts, in my experience, often there might be 20 or 30 or more. And part of that can be the nature of trauma and the nature of how it develops. For example, when there are child parts. And so described earlier how many people would have had repeated abuse in childhood. Well, just say someone was being abused about eight years old and they had a way in their mind of being outside their body. They might have been flying around the ceiling at the time. So experiencing themselves as moving around the ceiling and not in their body, which is one example that the person gave. But then part of them, if you like that's in a sense absorbing the abuse might be containing a trauma memory that then later on switches off with amnesia and then doesn't remember. So the person doesn't remember. For example, like this is grim, but being raped or being sexually assaulted or severely beaten. So the person's outside their body and then there might be another part that's copying that. But it's not as if that part is then just gone. There's still that trauma memory that might be left in a child part. So many people I know with DID, they might be speaking to you as an adult, but they've got the sound of crying children in the background. It might be one child part or a number of child parts together. They're expressing the grief and pain that's attached to the trauma, even though the person's got a subjective experience of being a different person. So it's like hearing it in the background, so to speak, but then at times recognising the different parts. Or it could be like one young woman I was speaking to and she was looking at me funny. This was when I was at the hospital in Geelong and I would have been in my early 30s. She would have been maybe a similar age. And she's looking at me in a kind of strange way and I suddenly asked her, what's going through your mind right now? And she said, well, I'll call the part Peter. Oh, Peter's really enjoying listening to you because Peter doesn't get to spend much time with older males. Peter was like a 14-year-old part of herself that she experienced on a recurrent basis fairly often from time to time. But in that mode, she would act as though she was a teenage boy. Another part, this would be an example of a war veteran. He suddenly came to consciousness interstate when he was scrabbling at a grave. It was his father's grave he was looking to dig up with his hands and he felt like he was about eight years old at the time. Sadly, he'd experienced a lot of abuse and trauma in his family. When he got back to his car to drive, he couldn't remember how to drive because he was only eight years old. So people can shift not just their sense of identity but their memories, 
maybe even their capacity to speak a certain language. We mentioned that earlier, dual personality example. People can literally shift things like allergies, not just personality characteristics, but even aspects of their physiological functioning. People can be suddenly very confident, even very flirtatious, other times very timid and withdrawn. But there can be this sense of others in the background and there can also be a sense where people have been like in a trance state and then gain awareness somewhere and not knowing what's happened for the last couple of hours. At times they might have gone out with friends and then later on heard how they acted at that time and they recognised that they were in a different mode at that stage and had some amnesia for it. So there is a kind of fragmentation or splitting in a sense within oneself where even awareness of one part and another can vary. But often there are parts that relate to past trauma and that contain some of the trauma memories, like you mentioned, and that shows how it does have, like a, whether we call it a protective function or a defensive function, but there's a cost. The person's losing that sense of awareness. People also, unfortunately, can have a very vicious self-attacking part. And in the early days, they might have called that more like a satanic altar. But at times, people could have a very vicious, self-critical, self-harming aspect that ultimately was often looking to have a protective function. Sometimes that could come out too if a person had first divulged to a clinician and then afterwards thought, oh, have I betrayed myself by letting out something of our secret, so to speak? And so that's where it's important that therapists are aware when someone's acknowledging about their dissociative experience, to be, first of all, very validating and help the person understand that many others have similar kind of experiences, but to recognise that people might have many different reactions to their own behaviour at a certain time, at some level encouraging themselves to do something, at another level fearful of doing something, another level of angry at them reacting in a certain way. People will often have many different reactions to a friend or a therapist. There'll be different parts of themselves, if you like, responding in different ways simultaneously. And the person might be aware of some of those parts and not others. And so that's part of the challenge of living in this more, if you like, confused and disrupted experience of one's identity. Well, I'll put up on, as I said before about the video, I'll put up a whole bunch of basically examples of people who experienced dissociative identity disorder on the podcast page for today because it's one thing that I found fascinating this week is reading a little bit of this stuff in terms of people even referring to themselves as we and, for example, the host of a system and, and talking about a system in terms of a, a whole range of parts. And, and one of the things that, uh, that I came across was people would talk about the idea that their parts come out when... So, for example, when I'm very stressed, you know, a particular part will come out and, and front for me, I believe, is even the terminology that they use. And what I wonder there is, you sort of alluded to it a little bit there, but it'd be really interesting to unpack a little bit in terms of, are people aware of the parts of themselves which have maybe developed a little bit later? For example, one thing that I came across was was basically, it was someone's part kind of answering the question of, of you know, do people with dissociative identity disorder think it's real sort of thing. And, and this person was saying, you know, like I, I know it's real, whereas my host is a little sort of unsure about this and maybe has a little bit more kind of confusion, a little bit more distress associated with it. So it seems to me that that person in particular had some 
sense of who the, the host part or personality was, is that often the case that people will have a sense of, of which parts of themselves are the ones that maybe have developed a little bit later on due to experiences or, or personality traits? Well, I think that, well, the way I put it is people often seem to have more awareness of certain core aspects or parts themselves that, for example, a person might call a primary. That's one kind of term I hear people sometimes use. Or otherwise it might be variations of their Christian name. It could be Samuel or Sam or Sammy kind of thing. And that's where it overlaps more with the normal as well. I know that you were describing how people in different contexts might you know, call you Rowan or call you Row. That's a kind of more normal everyday life way that we might present a little bit in different ways with different people or groups are used to seeing us a little bit in different ways or we're in a different role in a work setting or if we're partying late at night or if you're in a sporting field with competition. You know, Different situations draw from different roles with us that way and as you say, some people will find that sometimes they could do with a bit more feistiness and then one part of them will come to the fore to do that and then I think often when people have a say a primary personality that they're aware of then often people will be aware of those different parts that they can draw on more reliably in a certain kind of way but I, I think that they're often aspects of a person that are a little bit more if you like um, vague or or the person might be less aware of, that my impression would often be, if you like, earlier parts from earlier kind of trauma or more childlike parts in some way that might come up later on. But look, to tell you the truth, I wouldn't really have any particular ideas of the order with which things come up, but people do seem to have some more awareness of certain kind of central characters, so to speak. And there'd be other parts of oneself that might be a little bit more to the periphery. And if people might draw you a map sometimes of their different parts, if they've come to know you and trust you enough, and they might have some parts more bold and to the fore, and then there might be a little dot, dot, dot line to this one being aware of another part that's drawn in a more faint or small manner, showing it's a less distinct part, so to speak. And early on, tend to find that people, when they're describing the different parts, will use certain kind of names more frequently than others. Or it could even be a characterisation, like someone would use the term Mr Angry. And you get an idea exactly what that means, whereas other people give an, uh, an actual Christian name to that that seems like a very defined, different character. Well, I think it'd be interesting now to start to look at some of the, the treatment uh, for dissociative identity disorder. And before we do, it'd be good to talk a little bit more about the relation to trauma, because it is something that we've spoken about on on recent podcasts and we've alluded to it a bit in, in this podcast but it really did strike me what that lady on that video said about every traumatic event they would protect me they would get abused so I wouldn't have to it really was as if an element of herself was standing in the place of I suppose her more regular presentation of, of who she is so do you want to just elaborate on that a little bit for us in terms of the relation to trauma for dissociative identity disorder Okay, now part of it can relate to triggering of memories, but part of it relates to what you're describing there, something of a protective or buffering function. So if we think of someone being severely abused, say at 8, 9, 10 years of age, maybe even starting earlier and going a lot longer, and very severe forms of sexual or physical abuse, well, 
if the person also feels they can't get any supports from outside themselves, like trusted others, a parent they can turn to, if the person feels very unsafe as a child, well, in some ways your best alternative is to at least not feel so dreadful within oneself. So one of the main ways that people can do that is to switch off their subjective experience, or in other words, go into a trance state. It relates to hypnosis, in the sense not be there. So not feel so bad, not have even the trace of memory. It can help to forget something like that, the notion of amnesia. So part of what happens is people are using hypnotic mechanisms as a form of cognitive and emotional avoidance or memory avoidance, if you like. I don't want to be in my body. I don't want to remember this. I don't want this to be part of my life. I want to disown this experience. So it's got this disowning aspect and the mechanism is hypnosis, like a trance mechanism. So being able to block it out of mind. But the problem is it doesn't just go because we might block a trauma memory out of our mind so we don't, in a sense, have our frontal lobe switched on connecting to that memory. So our memories, if we see something, hear something, feel something, the memory is stored in the same parts of the brain that our senses experience it. So part of the visual memory will be in the occipital cortex, the auditory memory, the temporal cortex, and other parts of the brain. It's stored where our senses register. But then if the person can, in a sense, switch off their frontal lobe connection to those memories and those sensory experiences, that might buffer from the pain. However, those memories can be triggered. For example, one war veteran was in Fiji on this boat going for an idyllic cruise And he suddenly had these marked panic attacks and feeling rage. Piecing it back later on, he could see a line of trees in the distance on a tropical island and it reminded him somewhat of foliage in Vietnam. So he's triggered, even though in a very different setting. So that's the thing. Trying to block out trauma memories doesn't just work. It can be hearing a certain word even, seeing someone who looks a bit like a person who perpetrated abuse going back to a town where people used to live, where they'd been abused, seeing a movie that has a trigger, a reminder of some kind of experience. So people can have reactions come up and not know quite where they're coming from. And so that's the problem with blocking it out, but that's part of the protective function. But also the reactions that people are blocking out or the memories that people are blocking out that relate to trauma tend to be those that relate to survival mechanisms. So fight, flight, freeze and submit. These through evolution help animals survive, fight and flight obviously, freeze, well if you're not running around in a panic then a distant tiger mightn't see the rabbit. So through evolution the person looks to freeze and also submit. Less likely to be seen if you're playing possum, the predator might think the animal's dead. So fight, flight, freeze, submit. These are the different kind of survival mechanisms with trauma. Now the thing is if the person's blocking out that kind of memory, then there are also parts of them that could be triggered with this fighting response. And people can have parts of themselves that are particularly aggressive. Like there'd be many people in jail, for example, who have dissociative identity disorder and some more violent parts, so to speak, carrying this fight kind of reaction. Or people might feel very timid or have panic attacks that'll be readily triggered. That can be the, the flight part and to some extent the freeze part. 
Or people also can be quite helpless and immobilised in certain situations, and that might be the submit part. For example, one time I saw a lady in hospital. She was in her, I think, late 30s, and she'd only been admitted very recently, and her face looked very unduly bland, almost calm for the situation she was in. She'd just been admitted to a psychiatric hospital, and people were trying to figure out what had happened with her. She was clearly very disturbed, and it came up. I had a number of sessions of contact with that lady. It seemed that there was something quite dissociative in her presentation, and I was asking her after a little while, when I got to trust a bit further, I asked her a little bit more about past trauma. And then she mentioned about a relative, this was many years ago, I can say an uncle, who had sexually abused her. I asked her, when did it stop? She said, it's still going on. She was in her late 30s. She looked very competent. You'd think that she had all the wits about her in certain kind of ways. And that was unnerving to think how distressing that she was continuing to go through that experience. She would have gone into a submit mode when she encountered that kind of relative, almost like a hypnotic trance of submitting that would have gone back a long time, that would have been entrenched. So that's the thing that these different kind of parts or modes that people can have or ways that they react that ultimately relate to some of these survival mechanisms. And... That's partly where unless the person is aware of maybe some of the nature of trauma they might have experienced, it doesn't mean they have to go through every gruesome memory, but when people can recognise if there has been severe past trauma, they can recognise that, then people can be in a better position to recognise the triggers that come up. And people might be in more of a position to, if you like, manage some of the pain that goes with that dare I say, with their frontal lobe switched on, in other words, being aware in the present, without having to be out of their body again or somewhere else or some other person or just have amnesia for it. And so that's where, when we talk about trauma, we talk about three dimensions. There's intrusive thoughts or images. There's avoidance, meaning trying to block out thoughts or memories. And there's hyperarousal or the anxiety and distress. The distress is so great and uncomfortable, like having an electric shock, naturally people are going to look to avoid. And dissociative avoidance is this kind of buffering, if you like. The amnesia, this isn't happening to me, I'm outside of my body, the depersonalisation we talked about in the last episode. It's a form of cognitive and emotional avoidance that relates to the avoidant family of symptoms, if you like, with PTSD, but it's got that hypnotic quality to it that makes it, if you like, less in control, more unpredictable if it's happening spontaneously. If someone knows they're using hypnosis to deal with pain, like they've got a really sore arm and they go to a hypnotherapist and they learn how to use hypnosis to reduce the pain, that's one thing. But if it's happening just spontaneously, it's happened through much of a person's life without them being really aware of what's happening, they go into quite a different mode, then it becomes so much more unpredictable. But that's how we can understand it would develop. Repeated quite intense pain, distress, overwhelm, feeling, I can't call on other support so much, I don't have another way of dealing with this, okay, I'm not here, using the hypnotic mechanism. Well, it just strikes me from hearing you describe that there, of just 
how I suppose normal it is, for lack of a better term, in terms of if you were in that situation, why would you go through the experience of, of such distress to do that? And the other thing that strikes me is you could see if someone was a child and they didn't have, for example, the life experience and developed that as, I don't want to necessarily use the term skill, but at the same time, in some ways it's a skill, you could see how other I suppose, uncomfortable emotions, even if it wasn't necessarily such intense pain to that degree, you could see how that tool would still be used in terms of even if it wasn't sort of such direct pain, it could be be anger, it could be whether it be uncomfortableness. You could see how if that was something that people were, I suppose, getting results from in terms of not experiencing the pain as much as they would, that that would be a pattern that would continue to develop. So, yeah, I suppose it just, uh, again, you know, like we spoke about last week, it just underlines the importance of having empathy in this situation and particularly for people who are experiencing having empathy for yourself because, uh, it's you know, from hearing you describe that, it's the complete opposite from that, you know, crazier than crazier idea that you spoke about before. But I suppose just to even get a little bit further into that idea of the trauma that, that comes with this sort of stuff, I know there's a... a, a model I believe to do with a victim a rescuer and a perpetrator that I understand it is very helpful in the treatment of dissociative identity disorder as well as other trauma informed therapy do you want to just give us a bit of a sense of what that model is and, and how that's helpful for what we're talking about today okay well in situations where the trauma is interpersonal the person especially if they've been severely abused by a close family member or parent or someone who should have been in a position of trust then that tends to set up a different kind of dynamic in people's relationships and one thing is we can understand like in some ways a person is more likely to experience themselves as a victim because well in a sense they are in that situation if they're a child and it's repeated abuse so there's a a victim kind of experience that can come with it But people in that situation can also look to elicit rescuing behaviour from other people. And again, we can understand how that would be protective as well. So people can look to get in this victim pattern looking for a rescue. But also, there's this thing that happens with trauma, like the Stockholm Syndrome, that we call attachment to the perpetrator. So the Stockholm Syndrome is where people might identify with those who have, for example, kidnapped them or tortured them or it happened also in the Second World War, people would identify with the enemy soldiers running the camps, for example, the concentration camps. And so there's something psychologically that, in a sense, getting with the strength, being on the side of the perpetrator, we can see how that can be protective. But what can happen is people can internalise some of these reactions, at times victim at times looking for that rescuing as well, but also people can be identifying with the perpetrator and this can become internalised within the person's own personality in their own parts. Parts of them can feel like a victim. Parts of them can be like a rescuer, including stepping in and taking on the pain and letting the person feel amnesia while that part, like you described earlier, takes on the pain for them. There's a rescuer, but also parts can be like a perpetrator. And this can happen in people's then interactions with others. With this dynamic going on within one's own personality, it means that people's reactions with others can leave them or the other person 
tending to sometimes be in the pattern of a victim, sometimes be in the pattern of being a rescuer, sometimes being in the pattern of a perpetrator, like treating someone meanly. And it can shift a bit between these patterns. So just people recognising that that's part of the nature of especially very harsh interpersonal trauma. People can get caught up in these different kind of roles and they might not be reacting to, for example, the current family situation that they're in. They might be partly reacting to a triggering of long past abusive experiences when they get into more of a victim mode, rescuer mode, try to switch off in some way or the perpetrator kind of mode. So it's just being aware that that dynamic can play out. And getting on to the treatment now of, of this sort of stuff because it strikes me how potentially difficult some of the treatment could potentially be in terms of, I think we spoke a little bit last week about the idea of exposure in terms of exposing someone to the traumatic memories and, and that experience again that could be just so hard and so distressing for someone to have to go through. The other thing that strikes me is that once someone is in the situation where they are experiencing their personality as different parts, I imagine they would feel that although they may have a, a primary or, or a host or whatever they want to refer to it as, they would feel that none of those parts are any less legitimate than the others. So in some ways, I imagine it would almost be a little bit of a feeling of, of killing part of themselves or, or having to say goodbye to someone, which I imagine could potentially be quite tough. So how do you go about treating someone who has dissociative identity disorder to the point where they are experiencing those parts of themselves in their personality? Okay, now one thing is, one general principle is all parts of a person are looking to serve some useful purpose the person's benefit, if not now, sometime in the past. So there can be aspects of us that may be a bit beyond their use-by date. For example, if we react in a very forcefully aggressive way when we're feeling we have to defend ourselves, when we're feeling under threat, well, maybe that could be helpful if you're living in an unsafe kind of environment, but it's not so helpful if you're living in a loving, supportive family, which many people might be later on, for example. So if that reaction is triggered, it might be, in a sense, well past its use-by date. But every part and aspect of a person has some kind of value or purpose or meaning, either presently or in some kind of historical context. So we're not trying to just get rid of or eliminate any aspects of a human being. What we're looking for, if you like, is ultimately people being able to manage painful experience within their own skin with their frontal lobe switched on. In other words, feeling equipped to deal with whatever challenges, emotional challenges that they face because then people are going to be more aware, their brain functioning is going to be more, if you like, integrated, their mood is going to be, dare I say, more stable and even and people are going to have more choices how they're going to act in the situation. So a lot of it is helping people develop their ways and their assurance about managing with certain situations, being able to be there within their own skin, with their frontal lobe switched on, in other words, not having to use these excessive hypnotic mechanisms. They're understandable, but it means that it actually compromises the person's sense of control because of the amnesia, the unpredictable shifting, the triggering of reactions. So basically, we start off with psychoeducation, and that's part of what this podcast is about, looking to put some context to it that we can understand how people would use these hypnotic kind of mechanisms to block out pain. But the idea is to have other ways as well. 
Because like you say, if people have developed that skill when they're six years old to be in their body, when they're 12 and 13 and 14 and they have normal everyday conflicts in the schoolyard or they're feeling a bit pressured with schoolwork, well, fantastic, they don't have to be in their body. They can have amnesia for it, but that's not very good for learning. It's not very good for their interaction with other people. So it's looking for the person to be, in that sense, more integrated, more aware, have more choices how to deal with things, what we might call, dare I say, more mature coping defences, which often involves acknowledging, I feel bad, but I can handle that. Acknowledging feeling somewhat overwhelmed at times. Hey, look, I might just have to muddle through with this. I don't feel on top of it, but I have ways of getting by. I can draw on supports from other people, that kind of thing. But first of all, it's acknowledging that trauma is often involved and those hypnotic mechanisms kick in. So the person's got some understanding why they tend to go into these trance states too often, if you like. That gets disruptive. So it's looking for the person to be able to be more present and experience their feelings a little bit more directly. So not so much talking about not having these different parts so much or whatever, we're talking about being more present and integrated in that sense, not to eliminate something, but to be more, if you like, connected with oneself and all of one's resources. So there's that psychoeducation that we're talking about now, then there are grounding techniques. And the grounding techniques are to help Learn not to go into trance so much. So it could be using your five senses and describing what you experience. Now, it might be a number of things that you see, that you hear, that you feel the chair beneath you. It can be putting your feet on the ground, looking down at your shoes and feeling the floor under your feet. It could be holding a ball that you're squeezing in your hand so you can see it and even hear it a bit but have that tactile feeling being grounded in the present, even staying attentive or present in a conversation with someone else, like that will be in a therapy situation, for example, but say another situation. In other words, being in the present, being aware. Sometimes it can even include acknowledging a body sensation. It could be an element of discomfort or pain or even hunger, but somatic or bodily sensations are in the present. Our body's always in the present. If we notice some kind of physical sensation or feeling, by definition, in a sense, we're in the present. So grounding techniques and then arousal management. It's important for people to have some kind of way of reducing their distress levels. Things like slow breathing, distraction techniques, using a mantra. There's a range of different things that people can find to help to lower their arousal level, but also to recognise sometimes people are hypo-aroused. Sometimes it might be a numbness that they're feeling, that switched-off hypo-arousal, in which case, again, it might be looking to be more engaged with the situation that they're in, including acknowledging some discomfort or noticing some things that they feel in their body, even if that feels uncomfortable, whilst looking at other ways of managing with that. So there's some of the key initial things that would be the core starting points of therapy, the psychoeducation, grounding techniques and managing one's arousal. Well, it strikes me talking about, for example, the frontal lobes there and I feel like a bit of a broken record in some ways, but at the same time, it just strikes me that, you know, 
what is it, age 25 that the brain fully develops sort of thing. So again, you can just so kind of easily see how this could develop if someone was in that situation. But it seems to me, I suppose, you know, alluding from what you're saying there, there's a bit more of maybe an integrative approach that comes with the way that you're talking about it, the therapy approach for dissociative identity disorder. I believe that's somewhat of a controversial approach in some circles. Do you want to maybe give us a bit of an insight into why you advocate for an integrative approach? Okay, it's generally the notion, I I think for all of us, it's a life challenge to become more fully ourselves, to become more fully whole. We've talked before that all of us can have like a persona, a face that we show to the world, and deeper down there's that notion of our ourself, which is our more rounded, if you like, personality, our deeper kind of personality. And part of that will also have a shadow side. And our shadow side will include some of our less virtuous traits. It might be at times a degree of envy it might be the fear reactions we have it might be the unacceptable anger that we think that we have in certain kind of ways all of us can sometimes act a little bit more a certain way in one situation compared to another and we might be somewhat influenced if you like by other people's approval or perceived approval or expectations that kind of thing I think it's a a life challenge for all of us to look to become more fully ourselves more whole if you like and so that's a notion of being somewhat more integrated but with this we're partly looking at people's capacity to develop rewarding relationships deep and rewarding relationships and if we think of often what people's experience has been like with severe dissociative disorders. Often there is that past history of abuse or trauma. It certainly might not be in someone's family. It might have been in response to war experience or a terrible accident that someone was hospitalised for for a long time or it could be very much abuse from outside one's family, for example. But these experiences often lead people to have less faith in themselves and their own ways of dealing with things but also less faith in someone else. So people's quality of relationships and trust with other people will often be affected with this kind of interpersonal trauma when people have been abused by others. And so one of the big challenges there is people often have difficulty with boundaries. And so learning to have more clear boundaries with others, being able to say no, being able to ask for help in different ways, being able to have different opinions or preferences from other people and accepting that... Even having some subjective change. At times you might prefer certain kinds of food or some way of living and other times it might be a little bit different as well. Like some variation in that can be natural. But broadly having this overall sense of ourselves with some sense of continuity over time, that tends to be something which goes along with people feeling more whole and happy. So the word whole is very closely related to the word health, hail. So they have the same kind of root, wholeness and health. So we tend to believe that. So the notion is if we have certain kind of emotions, even including fight, flight, freeze, submit kind of emotions, sometimes it really helps to see where they are actually connected with certain experiences that may be in the past that are being triggered. And if we have an understanding of that, we can have more understanding of why we tend to feel quite fearful when we meet a certain kind of person and we realise that, they remind us of a perpetrator in some ways. It just helps have a more 
full understanding of our history, how we've developed our ways of reacting, where we are. And I think that to be able to be present in a situation and not shifting into different kind of trance states or find oneself spontaneously and unexpectedly reacting in quite a different way, that has a real cost to it. It has a compromise to people's sense of control. So I think some of the best ways I've heard it described is what Jason described and Ryan described in our last podcast on depersonalisation, like how Ryan could describe how he would engage in this backseating to be in the back seat, like using a hypnotic mechanism so he wouldn't have to be in his body. But the problem is he's not in the front seat driving. So just the difference with gaining that more subjective sense of control when you might have to learn to tolerate more discomfort and pain and accept more of your painful memories and recognising what you're triggering might relate to to some extent, but then you can be more in the driver's seat or as Jason described it before he felt like he had one finger on the steering wheel. Now it sounds like often he's got two hands on the steering wheel or like another fellow described it to me, he said, I'm like the pilot of a plane. It's like someone else down the back is fiddling with the rudders. So I think this notion of like a vehicle or direction or being the author of one's experience, being self-directed, having autonomy, I think these things, it helps to have that sense of more integration. And to do that, we kind of have to deal with conflict with other people. So partly that means having boundaries, at times being able to say no, but also being able to let people in to a degree. Having ways of being discerning. Can we trust other people? And it's worth often taking it slow step by slow step if people have been abused in the past. Having ways of asserting oneself with others. And that's one thing I notice when people are going really well with DID, they're managing their painful experience more, they're engaging in trance less, they're developing step-by-step step a little bit more trust with others, but they're also able to say if they think that the person has crossed a line with them and gradually learning more about their anger that they can feel more. Anger is an emotion that often tells you that a line has been crossed. It's a healthy, helpful emotion when we look at it that way. If there's a way of then signalling to the other person, and it might be a loved one, it might be a partner, that you felt that they've crossed the line in some way, it might be with their irritability or the way they've spoken to you or the way that they're drinking excessively and then becoming disinhibited and, again, more aggressive. Being able to take steps to assert oneself with others if their behaviour is crossing a line, that's very healthy and people are going to be more likely to do that if they're not, if you like, switching from their sense of who they are at the time to a different part that might have a more, if you like, exaggerated way of expressing anger or fear or some of the kind of reactions when people feel they're more blended it's like one lady described to me it's more like being a rainbow than lots of different colored balloons i really like that kind of analogy you can still have different parts and shades of oneself but that is more integrated not having the separateness it's got more of a sense of flow of acceptance of realising these different shades or colours of ourselves can all have that real benefit and all our characteristics can belong in some kind of way. But often we're going to act in a more consistent and considered and helpful way if we're balancing out the range of different interests and motives that we have. 
And I know from times that you've told me in the past that there's been people who've advocated for things like, for example, issuing multiple driver's licenses for someone with dissociative identity disorder and even things like making someone pay for multiple sessions after having seen them. And the therapist in that situation, I believe, got to, for example, meet um, multiple of the parts and so they charged all of them. So it seems to me that, that that way of thinking also leads to potentially people being able to take advantage of people a little bit more too. Yeah, that's one of the worst examples, or that's the worst example I've heard of a, a therapist or clinician being over-invested in multiplicity. That was outright criminal. Apparently, one of the parts that he charged for, so it was one session, but a number of parts showed up, so he charged the different parts, as you say. I think it was a full fee for showing up. One of the parts was a duck. Oh. Can you believe it? That's how crazy it got. But yeah, this thing of looking at different driver's licences, unfortunately, it reinforces that illusion of there being more than one person. Well, just to finish up, Dad, I suppose there's, there's just a couple of things that kind of strike me about all this that I'd like to run past you a little bit. And one of them is that I wonder if, as people go through therapy, as people begin to address the trauma, potentially indirectly at first, and, and then maybe even slightly more directly later on, it seems to me that people would experience maybe less switching they would experience less pronounced parts of themselves once they did, for example, start to process the trauma a little bit. And as I say, it may not necessarily be as direct, but is that the case? And the other thing that I wonder about, that little bit of a follow-up question, is that are the parts that were once represented as distinct personalities, as a part of a whole, are those traits of that part, do they then become a little bit more present in the person that, that is presenting themselves in front of you as the therapist is it the case then that it's not as if they're killing someone as in a part of themselves it's not as if they're le having to particularly let go as much it is more that they're you know taking those elements and, and as we say integrating them with another aspect of themselves yes i think that's how it goes the person doesn't lose just the energy or the wherewithal behind that part so if a part was very forcefully aggressive for example it tends to become more blended with a kind of capacity to assert oneself even strongly if you like it tends to become more balanced dare I say more integrated with the person's personality they tend to have less frequent extreme panic reactions so to speak so the more extreme reactions do tend to become a little bit more blended. And I find that when the person does feel more integrated, they might still refer to a part by a different kind of name and they say, oh, that's you so-and-so know, -so kicking in or that's so-and-so I can draw on. But the way they say it, they say it more like a person realising that they can draw on a resource, if you like. Like saying, oh, I can draw on that role. I can be that way in that situation, but the person isn't having the amnesia so much of switching from one part to another. So I'd like to say with that that as people do become more assured and able to manage with painful experience within their own skin, they're not so much hyper-aroused with a panic and anxiety, major anger reactions, that kind of thing, nor hypo-aroused with the numbing and the switching off and the trance states kind of thing. When the person's more present, Quite frankly, those different personality states or parts seem to blend more anyway. Like therapists don't always have to talk about something like the notion of integration. 
the person tends to find more of a blending, like more of a rainbow than separate coloured balloons anyway. But there can be an intermediate step. And I mentioned that a number of people have had really useful ways, for example, of having like a committee meeting within themselves. And it's what we might even call, it's almost like family therapy. It's also sometimes called an internal family systems approach. Actually inviting different parts to be present, as you would invite different family members to be there for a family therapy meeting, family therapy session. As one fellow described it, he said that there's one part that was so much at risk, risky behaviour in a range of ways and potentially impulsive and forcefully aggressive, that that part had to be in the corner of the committee meeting. Still, yeah, they've got a place in the room, they belong there, but in the meantime, they've just got to stay in the corner for a bit and have their place because otherwise they disrupt it for the other parts. Or someone I know would have a committee meeting or a board meeting and they'd invite people there, but sometimes they wouldn't show up. But after doing that for maybe a few weeks, then some parts would show up a little bit more and then the person found it became a little bit more accessible to encourage, if you like, conversations or some kind of working through or balancing out of interests of the different parts. That's something which I think can be really helpful for some people to do that explicitly. But I know of other people where maybe the parts weren't as, if you like, quite as distinct or separate in the first place. You don't even need to talk about like different characters so much or different kind of names, but there is a sense of people being in different modes at different times and it just seems to become more evened out. And you find that the person's also having less amnesia, They're describing being a little bit more confident in certain personal situations. Their relationships might be developing a little bit further. They might have dropped off certain friends that they've been discerning and realised they need a boundary with them. They weren't such good friends to be with. They've got a little bit more open to some other friends or neighbours that they've realised that they could let into their lives a little bit more. You find also more discernment and blending that way and that's where you get a sense that people are going through that more fundamental personality development and change and becoming more whole, still with all those tendencies and potentials in them, but more blended. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. It's been such a fascinating topic to talk to you about, to have a bit of a look into. As I say, I'll pop up the video that I mentioned earlier on the podcast page for today, which you can access at www.sykespeels.com.au. And I'll pop up all of the other resources that I came across. As I say, it is so interesting to have a bit of a a peruse through uh, some of the the forums, some of the discussions of people with dissociative identity disorder, just to get a bit of a sense of their subjective experience. Because as someone who, who doesn't experience it, may not have had so much of a concept of it beforehand, apart from, you know, this Hollywood idea, it has been very interesting. And, you know, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the thing that just really comes through for me is, is having empathy for people who do experience these sorts of reactions, but also people who you know, may seem a little bit kind of weird or different in certain ways. You know, these are, these are reactions that are, you know, not very intuitive in terms of coming across them and, and knowing exactly what they mean and what they may relate to. But at the same time, they're not illegitimate. It is something that, as we've spoken about, people could very much develop over time if they were going through these experiences at those sorts of ages. Uh, and I just want to leave you, Dad, just uh, with a little quote that I heard from someone which uh, certainly resonated with me as, as maybe someone who grew up kind of in the you know, late 20th, 21st century, but talking about 
someone experiencing dissociative identity disorder, like my mind is like an internet browser. 14 tabs are open, two are frozen, and I don't know where the music is coming from. So uh, again, such an eloquent way of describing what distressing experience that must be. But it seems to me, Dad, that there's, there's hope, I think, for, from what you've described today for people who are experiencing that because they're not necessarily just resigned to not having the control over those elements of their personality forevermore. Actually, in terms of that hope, and I'll just highlight some things there, didn't say earlier about medication because medication is not a primary treatment for dissociation, but for some people that could be helpful, like antidepressant medication for the depressive aspects that go with it, that could be helpful. But certainly, many people benefit from longer-term psychotherapy. Now, that might be over quite a period of time. It commonly is. But I've also seen people make great strides even in five or six sessions with greater understanding, but this notion of looking to manage painful experience within one's own skin. But I think like you were saying with empathy, there's a core ingredient called for, self-compassion. Now we're talking here about empathy and having some compassion for people's experience, but self-compassion, that seems to be such a core ingredient people giving themselves some permission to have some of the really challenging difficulties that they do, but being somewhat gentle with oneself, watching out for what can be such a harsh critic often in this situation. Self-compassion is called for. Gradual change, often say the slower you take it, the quicker you get there. And certainly, I want to say, really appreciate and thank the people who have entrusted myself and colleagues with telling more of the story of their experience to help us get a bit more of an idea of what they're dealing with. And often there's that great courage you see in people turning things around in a generation, despite what they've experienced themselves, deciding with the way they interact with others, maybe having families with their own. You often see this, how people turn things around in a generation, and that takes great courage, wisdom. That's very uplifting when seeing that. Well, I know this is an area you've specialised in for, uh, for, for some time now, Dad. I won't say exactly how long, you old fart. <laughs> but, uh, but I can see why, you know. I can, I can see why. It's um, a fascinating, fascinating topic and, and, yeah, something that I've really enjoyed speaking with you about today. So thank you. Thank you, Rowan.